if anger is like gasoline and we spray it out and somebody lights a match, you've got an inferno. If we put the anger, the gasoline in our personal tank, in our carburetor, it drives the engine. So your anger can then get you up in the morning, keep you going on the issue you care about, pick you up when you're floppy. Anger's very good at that. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or as is the case today, people who have literally lived their lives on the front line of a world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, at the, at the time of recording and publishing this particular episode, we are, we're still in the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of the lockdowns are easing across the world, some are being extended. But wherever you are in your lockdown, we're, I think we're all at a point where it's something that we've been dealing with for months rather than for days or weeks. And for many and probably most, the stress and the strains of those months are very real right now. There's there's a high chance that conflict is a, a lot more of a familiar part of your life than potentially it was pre-pandemic. Now that conflict might be light, it might be children arguing over toys or homework or bedtimes, it might be more intense as many of us deal with financial and family crisis points, or, and as is the case for far too many, it might be critical. Your home might not actually be a safe place and the main emotional and physical dangers you face might lie more within your four walls than outside. Now, for some people, dealing with and trying to resolve every one of those forms of conflict is actually their life's work. And it's one of those people who is my, it's my deep honour to have as my guest for today's episode. Dr. Scylla Elworthy was put on her path at the young age of 13, Having watched a life-altering news broadcast in 1956, which literally jolted her into teenage action. Now that small moment changed her life, which in turn then went on to help change the lives of countless others through her career. She is best known for founding the Oxford Research Group, an organisation set up in 1982 to develop communication between nuclear weapons policymakers and their critics. Now, for that work, she was nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize, three times. In 2003, she left her role there as executive director and she set up Peace Direct, which is a charity supporting peacemakers and peace builders in areas of conflict. She is also a member of the World Future Council and has advised Desmond Tutu and Sir Richard Branson in setting up the Elders. Now, for those of you who haven't come across the Elders, it's an incredible organization. Please do check it out. Um, she was also awarded the Nuwano Peace Prize in 2003. Today, all of that up to today, today her full attention is on developing Business Plan for Peace, which resulted in her 2017 book, The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War. Her latest booklet, which literally was just released in the last couple of days, is called The Mighty Heart, How to Transform Conflict. And it takes the experiences of people who have been preventing and resolving conflict for decades, some on the front line, others within families and schools, and distills their experiences, their frontline experiences, into practical, non-technical advice on how to build your own mighty heart. So that's a good segue in. What is a mighty heart? It'll put simply, and you know, as a result of talking to, to Dr. Elworthy, it feels like it is this. It's having the courage to meet conflict with compassion and curiosity and unshakable presence. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, keep listening for a start. In this conversation, we, we go straight into how to deal with a bully without becoming a thug and how to un overcome violence in all its forms without resorting to force. Why it's important to realize the distinction between being angry at the thing, 
the situation, um, the, the, the item that has triggered you, rather than the person, the person who is holding the opposing view to you, getting angry at the thing and not the person. Because by doing that, you can then recruit the person to look at the situation with you. We also talk about self-intervention. Now, you'll hear me, hear me mention this. This one has been huge for me over the past few weeks. I feel like it's been my mantra. I'm just going to go and give myself an intervention. How do we do that? You know, How do we take a step back when we feel too close to our trigger points? This one is huge and it's massively relevant for these times. How to take a stand clearly and calmly and with full gravity so you are not dismissed. And a quick tip on this, listen out for how important it is to actually take a stand. Physically stand up when you take a stand. And how do we build certainty through self-inquiry? Especially in those 3 a.m. moments. You know those moments, if you're anything like me, those moments where every single demon in your life comes a knocking, comes a visiting at 3 a.m. And one of my favorite points in this conversation was actually listening to how Scylla literally deals with her dragons when they arrive at that 3 a.m. moment. Now, for me, speaking to Scylla was both a massive honor and a reminder that the most powerful forms of influence are not force, aggression, or interruption, which I know sometimes is a really hard truth to hold on to. But in the long run of history, or any relationship, the only lasting genuine peace always comes from a willingness to firstly show up for ourselves before anybody else, then to get curious about both sides of the story, especially when that feels impossible. And finally, in the decision to fiercely and compassionately hold our ground, even, and again especially, in the moments when our knees shake and our voices break. Actually, Writing this introduction sent me off sent me off in search for a poem that I hadn't read in years. And it's by it's by Rumi, which many of you will have probably come across come across his work. And it's the closest and shortest summation of the beginnings of peace that I have I have probably ever found. And it goes like this Out beyond the ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I will meet you there. So find whatever resembles a peaceful place or field for you right now and enjoy my conversation with the truly indescribable Dr. Scylla Elwin. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Scylla Elworthy. I'm very happy to be with you. I'm so pleased to have you. I have to say, I can see you right now and I'm, you know, seeing beautiful sunshine behind you just Mm -hmm. makes me yearn from the, for the outdoors. Yeah. I live in a very, um, very countrified place, which has been a haven during this really difficult time. I bet it has. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to kick off the way that I usually kick off the podcast just because the most brilliant and fascinating people on the planet and it tend to have access to some of the most brilliant and fascinating ideas. And that is, what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? Well, it, it's, it's actually one that um, has been building up for the last four months. But uh, just after Christmas, I got this very strong notion that we were going to need everything possible that we could lay our hands on to help Um, prevent and respond to conflict. So um, I assembled everything that I could find from all the people I work with all over the world who are um, involved every day in stopping people killing each other, basically, and um, wrote it all down. And it's just come out, actually. It's called The Mighty Heart, because the heart is the organ in our bodies that we most need when it comes to conflict. And as we practice being able to prevent and resolve conflict, what happens is our heart expands. And as you probably know, Julie, the heart sends more messages to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. So it's an incredibly important organ for all of us at the moment. 
Now, actually, I had that down um, a little bit later in the interview to ask you about, but let's let's just dive into that now. You sent me some information on it, and you know, it, it looked fascinating. And and the first question that came to mind was, you know, what is a mighty heart? You know, you, give, you have such a strong sense of of what it might feel like, but how would you vocalize it? It's it's courage. I mean, the word courage is from the French for heart, cur, and um, the more we practice compassion and forgiveness, which is really hard um, <laughs> to forgive someone who's done you wrong is a big number. But the more we practice those skills, listening is a very big part of it. Uh, all of those actually uh, evolve the heart's capacity, enlarge the heart's capacity. And that's what you need when you're faced with a crisis, for example, if you or I were walking down a street and a knife fight broke out right in front of us, the fight or flight mechanism in our, in our amphibian brain would, would, would want us to run. But the, um, the more intelligent and the more informed part of our brain that we could engage would be the one that works with our heart. And that is to have presence in that very moment when we're threatened with violence or somebody else is threatened with violence and be there in our full calmness so that at least in that very high tension situation, there is one human being that is calm and able to provide what's needed, which is compassion and communication. You're reminding me of something somebody said to me once, which was the definition of responsible to be a responsible human being is to have the ability to be able to respond, Mm. to be able to find in yourself the ability to be able to respond, which feels similar, you know, that sense of presence. If you can find that, then there is your ability to be able to respond. Exactly. Now you've, you've said before, that you've spent you know, half a century trying to prevent wars and that one question has never really left you, which is how do you deal with extreme violence without using force in return? And essentially, and something else I've heard you say, how do you deal with a bully without becoming a thug? Which mm-hmm. is language that I think we can, all, we can all relate to. But I want to go way back to the beginning. You said that question's been with you since the age of 13 and something happened when you mm-hmm. were 13. Can you walk me through that? Yeah, well, I was sitting in my parents' um, living room watching a greeny old black and white TV. It was 1956. And I watched as the Soviet tanks rolled into Budapest, charged into Budapest. And young people, not much older than me, were holding up their hands and getting mown down. And I was so horrified that I rushed upstairs and started packing my suitcase. And my mum came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. I had no clue where Budapest was. And she said, what for? And I said, there's something so horrible happening there. I have to go now. And she said, don't be so silly. And I burst into tears. And bless her, she got it. She understood. She understood how much it meant to a 13-year-old. That's when we're very idealistic at 13 and very passionate. And um, so she said, listen, you're much too young to be any use. Um, If you want to be useful, you've got to be trained. And if you'll just unpack your suitcase, I will see to it that you get trained. And she did. She sent me off age 16 to work in a a holiday home for concentration camp survivors. And I sat all summer peeling potatoes, listening to the stories of people who'd been in Auschwitz and gradually learned uh, through going and working in refugee camps and in an orphanage in Algiers after the Algerian civil war and so on. I gradually learned a bit about what, what violence does to people, the, how war inflicts trauma on individuals that can take three generations to heal, not just one person. And, um, and I, that um, conviction has never left me. I, I, in, in a way, I think I was one of the 
um, lucky people who have no choice about what they do in life because there was no option to do anything else. So I went to university and got trained and then went to work in South Africa for 10 years and other parts of Africa and so on um, and ended up working for the UN for a bit, but that's a later story. And you realised during that time, you said that you, you realised that what you needed to know wasn't going to come from a training camp. You know, what you needed to know wasn't going to come from any kind of a manual or from, a, or from training of any form. What, was it, what did you feel was missing? Because obviously, essentially, you felt like there was something missing from the information you were receiving. I mean, the training was very good. Um, but what it didn't give you was the inner, what I would call the inner power to be present when violence strikes. Um, and that's a matter of self-reflection, the practice of self-reflection. Um, I, let, let me explain that a bit because it only came to me a bit later. I had a, a brain disease when I was 30, just after my daughter was born. And it landed me in a coma for two weeks. And then when I came out of the coma, um, I had just had this unbelievable migraine that stopped me in my tracks for six years, actually. But there was one phrase that went round and round in my brain. And that was, who am I? Who am I? What am I doing here? And it was an endeavor to answer that question, which wouldn't go away, that took me into a regular practice of self-inspection, of inner work. And it is work. Um, some people do it through therapy, as I did. Um, some people do it through regular practice of meditation. Also, I find that very valuable. Any regular daily practice that enables us to get what I call a helicopter view of what we're up to, what our ego is doing in any moment. And that gives us the, the distance to, it's like a, a some people call it a balcony view, to be able to observe oneself and uh, course correct so that one is more conscious, so that uh, I or you are more conscious in the moment of what's happening. And I find that invaluable. And that's the, is that the essence of what we're talking here in terms of presence? Yeah, that's the essence. It gives all the most effective peace builders. I'm not just talking about activists. I'm talking about people actually on the spot in areas of hot conflict who are stopping other people killing each other. That's the best of them is that what, that's what they use. That's what they practice. That's what, um, People like Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese monk who helped stop the Vietnam War. That's what Nelson Mandela learned in those 27 years on Robben Island. It's what Archbishop Desmond Tutu uses all the time. And it's, it gives us that, um, that fraction of a second to collect, to be present, and to be able to respond not from fear but from uh, empathy from compassion if you like um, and it does need training it definitely does need training and that's why anybody who's watching your podcasts who does um, do a daily practice of yoga or any kind of self-reflection uh, I just want to assure them that they are really doing something valuable and training themselves to be useful in the world. It's not just a personal thing. I want to go back to, because we're going to come full circle back again. I just want to talk more about force. And, you know, there are, when dealing with force, when dealing with either violence or forceful behavior, you know, we have we have options. We can, we can give in, capitulate. We can use, we can meet force with force. But you said that very rarely have you come across situations where meeting force with force is useful. So why is that? And my question is really just why? If you meet force with force, what it brings out uh, is an escalation. 
and we saw this in the Cold War, um, the uh, Americans armed in the early 80s with more powerful nuclear weapons, the then Soviet Union did the same. It escalated. It just went up like this until we got to a point in the height of the Cold War when we were at the very edge of the danger of accidental nuclear war, never mind if the button was actually pressed. So um, I and, and, and I became so anxious about that for my family that that's when I started to um, gather the people who were making decisions on nuclear weapons. It took a long time to find out who they were, but I began to gather them below the radar informally to get them to talk to each other and more importantly to listen to each other and so um, that kind of meeting without the press there without any um, communiques uh, completely deniable meetings but where they actually learned about each other as people and they always ended up showing each other pictures of their children and so on so these were people who actually were able to meet um, and do something completely different from threatening and using it, uh, ulterior force. So um, the, the problem with using force in response to force is it, it does escalate everything. And that's very, very dangerous. And you've, you, you, know, you mentioned there nuclear escalation and your response to that, what you ended up doing in response to that. You said, you know, it's okay to be angry at the thing, but not at the person. And I just thought that was such a pivotal distinction worth, mm. you know, writing down a hundred times because to be angry at the person creates a conflict between you and that individual. And it makes any kind of resolution a thousand times further away, but to be angry at the thing, is that a moment where you can pull somebody in next to you? and almost make the situation a third party and look at it together. Is that the purpose of being angry at the thing and not the person? Yeah, that's what all the great teachers of conflict prevention advocate, that <clears throat> as long as you have two um, people, say, uh, arguing about um, an issue like, like weaponry, as long as they're like this and opposing each other, their egos are very strongly defended and so on but when they can be persuaded to put the problem in the middle and gradually for them to come around and stand shoulder to shoulder and look at the problem together then you get a different kind of response and that was proven endlessly in the nuclear weapons negotiations that led to a huge build down of the numbers and power of nuclear weapons in the late 80s it was really Gorbachev who started it and Reagan who fell in with it when he saw what a good idea it was. So um, it works to, um, to open a dialogue with your opponent and put the, as you've just said, put the problem in, in the middle and stand together to look at the problem and say, how can we crack this? Do you have to learn that? Did you learn that the hard way? Is that something that came innately to you? <laughs> Please tell me you learned it the hard way. <laughs> I, was, I, I was brought up with four big brothers and they were all better at everything than I was. And I, was very, I, I learned to be very competitive. And when, when I was 11, they gave me a shotgun and taught me how to fire it. Oh. Uh, I thought it was immensely, uh, immensely clever. And I went out into the woods by myself and I did something that was absolutely taboo. I stood underneath a tree and I saw a nest high up in the tree. And I pointed the barrel of the gun straight up and pulled the trigger. And down on my head came pieces of stick, pieces of eggshell, pieces of baby chick and the sky blue feathers of the mother bird. And I was so shocked at the violence of which I was capable that I took the gun home and never touched it again. A big lesson. And what did you take from that? Like what was the, I mean, obviously you're very young. What, what stuck in your brain about that moment? Just that violence was disastrous. I mean, that, that I could uh, blow up 
a whole nest full of creatures um, just by a, a flick of a finger on a trigger. And I witnessed that again and again in, in, in the Balkans during the Balkans war. I sat at the bedside of a man, he was a baker, and a sniper had shot him through the eyes. And this man was completely disabled. He could no longer earn. His family were desperate. He had to be driven in a jeep to Italy for treatment. He never regained his sight. So what struck me out of that was that this tiny fractional movement of a finger on a trigger of a sniper's gun ruined that family and probably all their relations dependent on them and wouldn't be healed for at least three generations. That's what war does. And that plays out, you know, that plays out in families. It, it plays out in communities and even, you know, as self-reflection, there are those moments where you can, if you if you can find enough presence, you can feel that trigger in yourself, that hair's trigger where you think I'm, I'm close to going one step too far now with my language, one step too far with what I'm about to say, how I'm about to say it. Mm-hmm. How, how do we take three steps back in that moment? And this question has been on my mind a lot during lockdown, because I feel like my favorite mm-hmm. phrase at the moment <laughs> is I'm about to give myself an intervention. <laughs> know that I'm very good at it but I would love to get better so what you know how do we take those three steps back when we can feel that trigger we can we can feel our fingers on that trigger I think we've all um had our explosive mechanisms triggered and 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 often uh, regretted it afterwards my best um advice if such is useful is breathe because When we're scared or angry, what happens is that the blood doesn't get to the brain. Um, It's so busy going um, to to, to all other parts of our bodies, fight or flight, that it doesn't get to the brain. And so the brain stops thinking and the heart weakens. So what we have to do is breathe because breathing gets oxygen into the blood and feeds the heart. So... Um, the one thing that I do when I'm really up against it and about to lose it is go, and and you have to breathe in for a count of five, hold it for one second and breathe out for a count of five. And you have to do that five times to get your sanity back. But it does. Wow. That's very specific and and Mm. very usable. Yes, really practical. And, and also something that you can, yeah, I'm just thinking for myself, something you can model for your children, you can model for your teams. Yeah, absolutely. It's a technique developed by a bunch of people in America called HeartMath, M-A-T-H, HeartMath. I've heard of it, yeah. And they have a, a worldwide service teaching people and children all over how to do this. It's absolutely brilliant and simple. We, we talked a little bit a while ago about, you know, often it feels like when we're meeting force that we either, you know, we either give in or we use more force. And you know, you've talked about a third option. And the language of that is active nonviolence. Mm. And I just, what does that, firstly, what does that phrase mean to you? And, and what does it look like? You know, if we were to see somebody or feel it within ourselves as an embodiment, what does it look like? Ah, well, I'm glad you mentioned embodiment because um, all that we've been talking about is embodying. It's not just a mental thing. It's embodying with your breathing, with your whole body, with your core intelligence. The body intelligence is, is superb in this. So anything that we do to uh, enable our body to be more um to be more aware of our body, whether that's, it can be gardening, being in the earth with our feet in the earth and and feeling the earth, being in nature, um, doing yoga, doing any kind of exercise where we're doing it consciously, not just listening to, to music or something. So embodiment is vital and 
the other thing is being willing to have it supposing you've had a long-term uh, argument with somebody or a disapproval or a feeling of outrage against somebody if you can summon up the nerve to say to that person would you be willing to sit down with me for half an hour and let us simply talk in the first person about our feelings about our, our, what the issue that's going on between us and what I suggest is um, you talk for five minutes in the first person not pointing finger and I will listen to you so carefully that after you've finished I will feed back to you what you've just said and then we'll change over and I can guarantee that if you do that and it takes only initially 10-15 minutes you will be able to move from the brain that says I'm right and she's wrong to the heart that says oh my goodness is that how she feels so you, you move from judgment to some kind of empathy when you understand how another person feels. Um, and that's what I've seen work at the highest levels, at the highest levels. You know, one of the, one of the things I love about your work, and there's many, is, is that you, you really focus on practical and doable tools that people mm. can take hold of in their families, in their communities, and you also, as, we, as anyone that's listening would have heard, you focus on where it starts, which is me, us, ourselves. I've heard, I've heard you mention before one of the things that you ask people to look at, which I think is just a brilliant question, to ask yourself, when do I collapse? Mm -hmm. In what moments do I collapse? Mm -hmm. And that's been a question that, again, over the past few weeks, because you know, they're so real and present for us at the moment, has been on my mind a lot, which is this question around surrender versus collapse. Mm. How do I stay out of collapse, which is a non-resourceful state? Mm. And how do I move towards a, a position of surrender where I'm able to accept what's happening and stay mm. in a resourceful state? Mm. Oh. How, how have you learned to A, make that distinction and, and shift from one space to the other? Right. I mean, I'd love to know what, what your answer to this question is, Julie, because I think to ask that question, you probably know a lot about the answer. Um, for what it's worth, I'll, I'll offer you mine. Um, and that is, I, um, when I feel on the verge of collapse, I reach for what I know will sustain me. And if there's no one around to give me a hug or just stay present and... Um, put a hand on my shoulder or go for a walk with me until I get myself together. Um, then I go for what I know will sustain me, which is the earth. So I try and find some plants or a tree or a piece of grass and stand there in my bare feet because I, I and I'm not saying everybody might, but I I just draw a lot of strength from the earth. I see the earth as our mother. We have um, raped her. We have poisoned her. We have treated her unbelievably cruelly. And yet she's still there. She still delivers uh, food that we need. She still makes the day go round and the sun come up in the morning, if it does, and the, and the moon at night. It's um, an unbelievable privilege to live on this planet and just to be able to go out and stand on the planet uh, somehow just brings me down to the ground, I suppose, grounds me. So that's what I do. How does, how does knowing when and where you collapse help with practicing nonviolence or nonviolent communication? How does that self-knowledge equip you? I think because um, it starts the warning lights flashing. You know, you realise that your your pulse has gone up, your your judgment's getting very um, diabolical. It's getting fuzzy and blaming and all those things. We know when we're getting out of control. 
and sometimes we want to, you know, the, the ego loves it. The ego loves being right. And the, the, the soul path that we're on, if you like, soul as in S-O-U-L, the soul path that we're on wants us to pause and learn from this crisis. So um, I think it's a question of um, getting into habit of observing what the ego gets up to being right basically to notice the ego and not be in love with it (laughs) (laughs) talk about boundaries for a second because we've we've talked about when do i collapse and then the next question you know the obvious pivot there is is when when do i stand up when do i when do i get large when do i use my voice when do i you know i start to assert and that comes down to boundaries being very, very clear around where your boundaries are. And I think that's something that we all struggle with. I can put my hand up for that one, trying to figure out where your boundaries should be. Now you would have had to be very clear on boundaries in many, many situations. How have you developed an inkling as to where your boundaries sit and where you will, you know, non shall pass? Where is the non shall pass zone? Mm. You do ask good questions, my goodness. Um, Let me frame it in terms of um, taking a stand, because that's what I always found very difficult when I was a teenager and growing up. How do I take a stand on something I really care about without getting shrill, without being taken down as an emotional woman, um, and without being so angry that... There was just no, no question of anybody understanding what I was trying to say. Because being angry um, out there it, it is disastrous for the reception of, of what um, one is trying to stand up for. So um, the, the analogy I find really useful is that of gasoline. If, if anger is like gasoline and we spray it out, and somebody lights a match, you've got an inferno and it may burn the house down. If we put the anger, the gasoline in our personal tank, in our carburetor, it's like it drives the engine. So your anger can then get you up in the morning, keep you going on the issue you care about, pick you up when you're floppy and all that, which is, which is anger is very good at that. And then when it comes to actually taking a stand, um, I've just noticed there's certain things one needs to do. One is to speak out what the truth is privately, preferably to a mirror, before you're going to be on the spot. So you would practice in front of the mirror, and the more you practice, the lower you drop your voice. Because... Particularly as women, we're often written written off as being shrill. And that interferes with people's ability to hear us. So to deepen the voice and then, if at all possible, actually stand up. And it's very hard if you're sitting in a nice meeting and something comes up and you're really um, exercised that you think the truth needs to be told. Um, And it's called, the Quakers, who I'm very fond of, call it speaking truth to power. And it is important to stand up. Even if it seems a bit um, embarrassing, just stand up because then your feet will be planted on the ground. The energy will be coming up through your body and you're likewise connected with the infinite with the greater intelligence whatever you like to call it and that's going to give you authority to speak the truth that you have rehearsed in front of the mirror and get it as succinct as you can don't charge on enlarging because you'll lose your audience that way speak your truth very simply very calmly quite loudly but in a low voice I wanted to, I want to just move in a different direction for a second. And I want to talk about your heroine or one of your heroines, Mm. um, Aung San Suu Kyi. 
from mm. from Burma. Mm. But just because you know what I've heard you tell the story before and, and it fits so perfectly with that theme of embodiment that we're talking mm. about today. Can you can you tell that story for us? Well, let me preface this by saying that Ansang Suchi has had an incredibly difficult life. Um, and I think that's the reason why she collapsed actually over the the whole question of the Rohingya Muslim, the terrible, terrible rape and mistreatment of the Rohingya, um, which many people haven't forgiven her for. Um, but yeah, she she she's and, and and she was in solitary confinement for many, many years while her husband was dying, while her teenage boys were growing up without her. She could have gone home at any time from Burma to UK, but she wouldn't have been allowed back. And she went, she stayed there in order to serve her people. And there was one time when she was, I think she was campaigning for election and um, she, her movement was being um, stalked and, and threatened by the military. And they were holding a demonstration. They came around a corner and there was a phalanx of machine guns pointed at them. And she was leading this bunch of students. And so she turned to them. She knew they would be very scared. And she said, sit down. And she walked forward. And this is where presence comes into it. And she walked forward so calmly until she was in front of the row of soldiers. And very carefully, she raised her hand and put it on the barrel of one of the guns and simply lowered the gun. And that gesture, completely peaceful and coming from this state of enormous presence was enough to calm the uh, tension that was in the soldiers and the tension that was in her followers and, a, and the massacre was averted. Um, I just want to, I want to dive into this for a second because what you're talking about there, you know, that calmness, that, that clarity, that lack of fear. And in my world, you know, we call it certainty to, mm -hmm. to have a sense of certainty and you can feel it. You know, you can, when someone walks, it's like gravity. Someone walks into a room with a sense of certainty and you can feel, you can feel them. And so if, if, even if you're not looking mm. and, and a big question on my mind right now, very much over the past few days is how we cultivate that. How do we cultivate it in ourselves, in our teams, in our children, and especially in those moments, the moment that you've just described where it really counts. Mm -hmm. the start, do, you, do you believe it can be cultivated? Is it, some, is, oh. it, is it something that we can practice? Oh, definitely. Certainty comes from, uh, I think it comes from, and a dialogue with the soul, with our soul, about our soul path. Because I believe, many people might not, but I believe that each of us has a path in this world that we were intended to walk along. And um, this, that's the path of the soul. It's, it's what you were intended to do. And many people are in great anguish because they haven't, been able to find that or to follow it um, but if if you have and it takes quite a lot of as we said earlier self-examination self-knowledge to to get there but in that work you can open a dialogue with your soul or even with your inner critic that's that's another way of doing it because the inner critic actually has a lot of secrets for us. It keeps muttering at us when we do things wrong, but it actually has a lot of knowledge to impart to us. And, and I actually, um, if I'm woken up in the middle of the night by doubt, or I recognize that this is an issue for truth and, 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 and certainty, if you like. And so I literally get up, make a cup of tea and set out two cushions and I ask the entity that woke me up, in my case, it's usually a dragon. I am breathing dragon. And I, I say to it, why did you wake me up at three o'clock in the morning? And then I go and sit on its cushion 
mad as it might seem, and answer in its voice when it has a voice. And it will go on berating me as it did when it woke me up. And I come back to my cushion and I say, that's not very helpful. What do you really want me to know? And then I go back to its cushion and gradually it will calm down and tell me what the real issue is. And it's by having that dialogue uh, as frequently as is necessary that I've been able to um, to reach certainty as to what I'm supposed to do, what I'm here for, what um, my job is really, and and therefore what it what it is necessary to try to share. I've I've heard you talk about the the three o'clock in the morning syndrome before, and and you know I've watched I've watched many of your talks, and every time I hear you mention it, it's just I feel like I take the deepest sigh of recognition <laughs> just that moment where you think oh thank goodness it's not just me because you know that 3 a.m to 5 a.m period I don't know if the dragons or the demons or whatever you want to call just come calling at that time for everybody well my dragon I, I've got a picture of him now I can send it to you um he has under his left claw he has a diamond and the trick is to get close enough to the dragon the fire breathing dragon cursing you that you can persuade him to lift up his claw and let you have the diamond which is the truth for you anyway the truth of self-inquiry yeah exactly and does it get easier and this is a very you know this is a personal question from me because the the process that you are describing is one that you know i'm no master at but that that question of does it get easier is certainly one that's on my mind at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It does get easier. The younger you start, the better. I would encourage all teenagers to learn these things because you can, you can become a wholly powerful person for whatever you care about, whether it's refugees or wounded animals or nature or whatever, you can become a more powerful person by getting to know your your real soul path and your truth and um uh it, it does get easier to answer your question i wanted to move back to bullies for a second um mm. and and the ways of the ways that violence is used you said that political violence um is there to intimidate there are three forms of violence physical mm. violence to terrorize mental and emotional violence to undermine and I think we can all recognize moments where we've experienced or witnessed all of those three. For some mm-hmm. of us, you know, unfortunately it's in our homes, um, for some our workplaces, for some our schools, and, and unfortunately, again, for many of us in our political arenas. Does it, does it work to call it out? Mm-hmm. You know, my mum my has a saying, you know, pick your battles. Mm-hmm. Does, it, does it work to call it out wherever you see it? Or are you better off? you know, holding your tongue in some spaces and picking your, picking your battles wisely in others? I, I think that's a question of judgment, what the issue is. I mean, if you're in front of a person with a carving knife, um, I think the calmer and quieter you can be, the better. With people who are habitually mentally violent, I found that the best way forward is to speak in the first person and say, right now, I'm feeling very frightened. Or right now, I'm feeling, um, my heart feels wounded by what's just been said. And so without pointing a finger and saying, you did something bad, you're letting the other person know spontaneously what state you're in. Now, some people would say that makes you vulnerable. Um, it's not my experience. Uh, I think it makes you, um, uh, what's the word, undefended. Um, and therefore, someone who is really on a, 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 um, a diabolical path, you, you, you have to be careful of that. But if it's um, 
a domestic or an, an, an argument that's been going on for some time, simply just to you know just put your hand on your heart and say, my heart is hurting. Just that, my heart is hurting. And the person will probably stop and take a deep breath. I can't I can't promise it works, but but obviously it's a question of judgment. And um, uh, you you know if you're faced with very violent people, you have to estimate what is your best course of action. That's a that's a beautiful and obviously for anyone listening, you know, you adjust the language for what works for you or adjust the language for the situation or the person that you're with or the context, but it's a beautiful pattern interrupt. You know, it's very hard to, to keep going on a runaway train when someone stops and says something as unexpectedly, you know, undefended as Mm. that to use your language. Mm. And it actually, it reminds me of another story that I'd really love it if you would tell, which is, you know, all around being undefended and, remembering the humanity of others or reminding other people of our own humanity when it comes mm. to nonviolent communication. And that's the, the story about us Colonel Chris Hughes oh. in Iraq. What a great man. Um, I, I read this story actually in the New Yorker and I've tried to track him down, but the story is, and it's obviously true that he was leading his men on a foot patrol three months after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, when you still could do a foot patrol down a street in Najaf. And suddenly out of the mosques and the houses on both sides of the road came furiously angry men screaming and waving their fists and charging at these young soldiers. They were probably only 19. They didn't speak Arabic. They had no clue what was going on. Chris Hughes strode into the middle of the whole thing with his weapon pointed at the sand and shouted an order at his men that they had never heard before. Kneel! And they wobbled to the ground with their heavy backpacks and their helmets and pointed their weapons into the sand and lowered their heads. And the whole throng grew silent. And after about two or three minutes, everybody went home. So the presence of that young Lieutenant Colonel saved, prevented a massacre, either through the young soldiers using their weapons or them being lynched. And he knew something, whether he knew it consciously or not, I don't know, but he knew something fundamental about violence. And that is that the biggest driver of violence is humiliation. And the best antidote to humiliation is respect. Very hard to do. Very hard to do. But if you have the presence of mind when you're being threatened or frightened by somebody, that this has resulted from them being humiliated. And if you can even put your finger on where that humiliation might have come from and say something or do something that shows respect for one of their qualities, it can work miracles. Have you had any instances in your, in your career that have stuck with you where it hasn't worked or it, it hasn't gone as you had hoped that it would go. I, I thought you might laugh at that question. And, and then here's probably the most important part of the question, which is in those moments, how do you rise back up with your commitment intact? <laughs> oh, um, well, I'll give you one moment. Um, and uh, in the eighties, I was researching and finding out how nuclear weapons decisions were made so it meant I had to open a lot of dialogues with the military with people in the Ministry of Defense with um, people who were um, devising new nuclear warheads um, people who were signing the checks and so on so I was present at a lot of military discussions and one of them was in Whitehall in London and there were about 200 people there 
uh, of which I think six were female and five of those were in uniform. So it was really, I was the only woman in, um, in civvies. And um, it came to question time, and this was an issue about nuclear weapons and the costing, a new bill had gone before parliament, and the costings of a new nuclear weapons program had not included the costs of decommissioning, which are huge. And I got up to, I put up my hand to ask that question. And to make the question clear, I had to do two sentences of explanation <clears throat> before I asked my question. And as I was speaking, the chairman bellowed at me, question, madam, sit down. And I was so shocked that I sat down. <laughs> I, I didn't stay. Yes, I can and, feel that. Uh, and, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was. How old would I have been? In my very early 40s. And the violence of it just put me out. And um, so it took me a while and my dear partner to put me back together about after that. Um, because he was wonderful. He was absolutely convinced Uh of the strength that was possible for me to have that I really didn't have at that time. He was a strong feminist and very, very supportive of me going into the lion, into the lion's den, into the belly of the beast. And um, yeah, without him, I couldn't have done it. This is probably maybe a question that isn't possible to answer, but you could take you now what you embody in this moment and take you back to that moment how would you do it differently first of all I think my it, what we referred to earlier my um, standing and comportment and certainty would have prevented the bullying of that chairman he wouldn't have dared uh, because you know we stand with more presence when we've done this for a while and so I don't think I would have got that reaction. But if I had, I would have remained standing and I would have said, Mr. Chairman, as everybody else in this room, I have a right to ask a question. And with your kind agreement, I will proceed and then go into the question. I would have loved to have seen that moment. How would I? <laughs> I have a final question. I, I have many more, but um, I'm going to finish with this one. You know, we, we talked at the beginning of the interview that you had just published The Mighty Heart, mm. How to Transform Conflict. I know it's available on your website. It'll be in, details will be in the show notes um, and you'll be able to find it on, on our various social channels as well. If you could, if for everybody listening, actually no, scrap that, if for everybody the planet as, a, as an entity were to wake up tomorrow morning with one tool that they potentially might not have going to sleep tonight that would get them closer towards being able to use a mighty heart in their next dealing with force or aggression, what would that tool be? When the moment comes, you know, as you say, dealing with force or aggression, if we can immediately breathe into our heart literally put the attention on the heart even put your hand on your heart and breathe in for five seconds hold it and breathe out for five seconds and keep doing that while you're while you're experiencing the fear or the anxiety or whatever it is that will give you the time and space to respond in a more humane and generous and compassionate way it's breathing breathing does it thank you so much for your work for your intention for your dedication and, and today for your time it's been an absolute honor julie it was a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for these wonderful questions and um yes next time you manage to get on a plane and come over here let me know and let's <laughs> well i have some some grandparents who are very much keen to see their grandchildren in this moment in time so it, as soon as that is possible i will definitely be there well give those two grandchildren a hug from me mm-hmm. 
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.